Turning, if you will, to the book of John, the gospel according to John, verse 35. So we're going to be looking at that this morning. I've entitled the teaching, Come and See, and uh, Lord willing, uh, you will understand why as we move through the passage this morning. Why don't we stand together and we'll read God's word, starting with verse 35 in chapter 1. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you hereafter, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So verse 35, it starts off with, again, the next day. The next day. The next day. Which would obviously lead us to wonder, well, what happened the previous day? We, we would want to know that, wouldn't we? Here we are in the next day. What happened the day before and the day before that and the day before that? Well, we have that account in the first chapter of John. We see as John writes this gospel, he starts off with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So right from the start, John establishes the fact that Jesus is God. We can bank on that. It's there for us. So Jesus is God. We also see in that passage that Jesus is the Word. We know that He's the living Word, the written Word, also the working Word in our lives. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is light. Jesus is life. And then in verse 14, a very profound statement, one that we're all familiar with. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. I've always thought it was interesting that if you run verse 1 together with verse 14, it sounds like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love the way that that flows together. It gives us great insight into who Jesus is. And so as we move on in that first portion of Scripture in chapter 1, we find ourselves looking at a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, a great character from the Bible. We can learn a lot from him in the Gospels. His method, his message, just his appearance, you know, dressed in camel hair, eating honey and wild locusts. But he's quite a character. He's quite a character to look at, to focus upon, to study, and what his ministry was. And he tells us in those first uh, 34 verses, he gives us insight into who he is. He was prophesied to come. He tells us who he's not. He's not the Christ. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. But he does tell us who he is. He's a voice one crying in the wilderness, and he gives us his message, make straight the way of the Lord. That's what he was there for, to make straight, make the path for the Lord. John is the one who gives the introduction uh, to Jesus. He's the MC, if you will, on what is to take place from that point forward in regards of the life of Christ and his interaction with the people. So John bears witness. He points to Jesus. Behold, he tells them who Jesus is, the Lamb of God, and what he's there for, to take away the sin of man. So this is the day after these things. The next day, the next day we'll see is a day of transition. It's a day of change. It's truly a day in which John will fulfill a later statement that we see in John chapter 3. He must increase... I must decrease. He must become more important. I must become less important. He must become more of the focus or the focus and not so much on me anymore. So those who have been following John, for, the, for them, this is a game changer, isn't it? This is where things are changing the next day, this next day that we're in. Now there's a chronological order in the Gospels that if we Weave them together. Maybe some of you have heard of the harmony of the Gospels. And many times there are Bibles that actually have that in them in the back. And it's a four-column thing, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they compare what's going on in each one of those. I have a book at home that actually does that and keeps the main storyline in bold-faced print. So you're jumping from column to column and you're getting a chronological order the way that things happened that you can follow. And we gain great insight from that. It's, it's a great tool for us to have that. Now, each one of the Gospels are uh, wonderful, standing on their own. There's much to be learned from those. But also, as we put all of that together, we get a different picture of how things took place. So, the previous 34 verses, we get an account of John talking about the baptism of Jesus, how he baptized Jesus. It doesn't take place in that text. It takes place in one of the other Gospels, but he's 
telling the people and reminding them of what took place. It's his account of telling what has already happened. And by looking at that account in the other Gospels, we see that right after Jesus was baptized, what happened? He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, where he was tempted by Satan. So chronologically then, we would find ourselves in the text Knowing that John has already baptized Jesus, that's already taken place, he's now pointing to Jesus, calling him the Lamb of God. So chronologically, Jesus comes to John to be baptized. John baptizes him. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove. God says, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The text tells us also that he's about 30 years old. We have that insight there for us. The Spirit then leads him into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's tempted by Satan. He leaves the wilderness then for some time. We don't know how long. Comes back to the place where John is baptizing. John points him out to those that are there. Gives testimony of him. Which brings us to the next day. In verse 35, the next day. With his disciples nearby. These are John's disciples. The next day, John will point to Jesus. And this is the point where he becomes less the focus in light of who Jesus is. And we see that John will start to lose his disciples. (laughs) It's an interesting thing that takes place. John's disciples who are listening to John's teaching, surrounding John, supporting him in his ministry, bringing people to John, I'm sure, all of a sudden these disciples now gravitate towards the one who John is pointing to. And it's perfectly, perfectly natural. It's something that should happen. It's what John wants to happen. It's John fulfilling his ministry, isn't it? John pointing to Christ, making the path straight, making the way straight to the Lord. That's what he was called to do. It was prophesied of him to do that. And that's taking place here on the next day. The next day. Verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. Now, up to this point... They were John's disciples. John had many disciples. Uh, We see in later writings in the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts, there were some of those disciples that only knew of the baptism of John living in another country. They hadn't even heard yet that there was a Holy Spirit. So there were many people coming to John, maybe coming to him, hearing his message of repentance, repenting, being baptized, and then moving on to their own countries. There were many followers of John, of John's teaching. These two guys, these disciples, were two of them. So, a disciple. What is a disciple? There's only two types of people in the world today. That seems like a strange statement, maybe, because we know that in all the different cultures and all the different lands, we see all these different people types and people groups, but there's really only two types of people. Saved and unsaved, people that have a relationship with Jesus Christ and people that don't. That's the two most important people groups, isn't it? It's really the only two people groups in the eyes of God. So what is a disciple? Webster's defines it as someone who accepts 
and helps to spread the teachings of another. Someone who accepts and helps to spread the teaching of someone else. That would be a disciple. Now we know we're disciples of Jesus Christ if we're saved. We, we want to follow him, learn from him, grow in him. But there are disciples in any other, uh, many other types of uh, businesses and those types of things. You could be a disciple of a, someone in a trade, a carpenter, if you will, one who's learning early on in that as an apprentice. And you learn from that carpenter. You learn his ways and how he does things. And he teaches you as you go along. So you could say, I'm a disciple of this particular carpenter. And that wouldn't be doing the word any injustice at all. It would be correct. You are learning from them, following them. You are their disciple. I am a disciple of, of golf. There are certain golfers that I like to learn from. As you watch me golf, you would assume that I haven't learned a whole lot. <laughs> that there's <laughs> maybe my the one who was discipling me wasn't all that great to start with either so I didn't learn much but I could be a disciple of someone in a particular sport or in business or any any number of things I could even uh, be a disciple of someone that cooks you see a lot of uh, cooking shows on tv today don't you you know the what is home television or whatever those are I don't know there just seems to be a lot of cooking shows you know, I, I like eating shows myself. Why, not, or why aren't there more of those eating shows? Not so much, you know, that you show up after it's cooked and you just eat. I think that would be a great uh, real life show to have, you know. Uh, so there's a story told of this young girl who just got married. And she comes back from her honeymoon and she desires to cook her first meal for her new husband to impress him with her cooking skills. And so she decides, I'm going to cook a ham. And so she gets the ham. She places it on the counter. She takes a knife and she whacks off one whole end of the ham, sets it aside, puts the ham in the, in the pan and puts it in the oven. And her husband's confused by this. He's like, what, why did you do that? Why, why did you cut off the end of the ham before? There must be some reason for it. And she says, I don't know. That's what my mom always did. I, you know, I learned from her. He said, why don't you call her? Let's call her and find out why she does that. So she goes, hey, mom, just wondering. I'm cooking a ham here, and uh, I cut off the end of it like you always did. And I was wondering, why do you do that? Why do we do that? Why do we cut the end? I don't know. Uh, your grandmother taught me that. I, <laughs> why don't you call her? I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. Call your grandma and ask her. So... Hey, Grandma, why, why do we cut off the end of the ham before we put it in the oven? She said, well, honey, when I was growing up, we didn't have a pan large enough to get the whole ham in, so we had to cut off one section of it. So she was discipled in cooking. Wasn't necessarily a good example <laughs> of being discipled because it carried on something that wasn't necessary. But she was discipled by them, by her mother and her grandmother, and it impacted her life. So what is a disciple of Jesus? This is the first time in the book of John that we come to that word, disciple. So it's important for us to look like, what does it mean? Why is it there? So what is a disciple of Jesus? What, what does one look like who is a disciple of Jesus? Number one, a disciple puts Christ above all other relationships. A disciple puts Christ above all other relationships. So you have to ask yourself this morning, 
is the relationship that I am in or the relationship that I am considering, is this relationship going to draw me closer to God or farther away? It's a really good question. Is it a healthy relationship in the eyes of the Lord? Is it a relationship that would draw you closer to God or would it be one that would draw you farther away, whether it be in business, whether it be in dating, whatever it is. Now, if you're here this morning and you're married, uh, let's not take that too far. <laughs> uh, I, I don't want you going, yeah, you, honey, you're drawing me away from the Lord. <laughs> we wouldn't want that to be true in, in any relationship, marriage relationship. But if you're not in that yet and you're considering dating someone, this is a good question to ask. I look at this person's life, and is this the type of person that would help draw me closer to the Lord, or would they lead me farther away? Number two, a disciple of Jesus puts God's will above everything else. Ask yourself the question, am I putting God first in all that I do? Does God get my first fruits or does he get my sloppy seconds? Am I putting God first? I have two daughters, one that's 30, one that's 21. The 30-year-old is married. We're expecting a grandchild. We're rejoicing about that. The 21-year-old is not married yet. But when they were growing up, if you were to ask them one thing that I always told them when it comes to dating, they would tell you, Dad would always say, God has his best for you. Don't settle for sloppy seconds. And there's so much truth in that. If God has his best for you, why would you want to even mess with sloppy seconds? Don't even give them a thought. Focus on, be praying about who God's best would be for you. Because God's best is going to be perfect, right? Number three, a disciple bears his own cross. What areas in your life do you need to die to? What do you need to give up? to the Lord and die to that certain thing that you're holding on to, maybe have been for some time. Is it sin? Is it sin that you need to give up to the Lord? Do you need to bear your own cross and die to that particular thing? So a disciple puts Christ above all other relationships. A disciple puts God's will above everything else. A disciple bears his own cross. Number four, a disciple puts Christ before all of his possessions. And we have a lot of possessions, don't we? Uh, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Costa Rica on a missions trip. And when you go to a country like that, you realize how much you have and how little they have. And you look at their lives, and they're happy. <laughs> it blows me away. You're like, well, they don't have anything, and they're happy. You know, not only do they not have TVs, most of them, they certainly don't have ESPN. How can one live one's life without ESPN? One and two, right? We don't get enough of it, so we have to have two. And I think there's a third one on the way. So we get caught up in our possessions, don't we? Our mission statement at Calvary Berthet is to love God and love others. And we could add to that this morning by saying, and use things, Love God, love others, and use things. Not the opposite of that, which is love things and use God and use others. We don't want to be in that place. Love God, love others, and use those things, use our possessions for the Lord. 
Number five, a disciple of Jesus is dedicated to God's word. We have a heritage that we can be proud of through Calvary Chapel that from the very start, it was started on a healthy dose of God's word, a focus on learning God's word and living by God's word. Pastor Chuck gave us that heritage, and we continue that today so that you know when you step into a Calvary Chapel, wherever it is, you're going to be fed God's word. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But also we get some insight as we look at the Lord's Prayer, what is called the Lord's Prayer. It's not actually the Lord's Prayer. It's an example that the Lord gave us and to his disciples for prayer. When he, he said, uh, when you pray, pray in this manner. And one of the statements in there is, is just, all of it is, but this one is just rich for us. And then he says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, we like that, don't we? Because we like our daily bread <laughs> and donuts and candy bars and whatever else it is that we eat. Meat, potatoes, vegetables, I guess. <laughs> but give us this day our daily bread. And we, we look at that verse, and that's immediately what we think about is, our physical need. So it's sustenance for us, isn't it? It's physical sustenance. But it goes way deeper than that if you look at it. It's also spiritual food. It's also spiritual sustenance. And so God is encouraging us to pray. He's encouraging us to pray in a certain manner. Not much of said in that passage of when, though. Now, we know, pray without ceasing, pray all the time. But we have the opportunity each and every day, the next day, tomorrow will be the next day for us, right? The next day, we have the opportunity to get up early in the morning and go to the Lord, asking Him, Lord, give me sustenance sufficient for the day. Whatever that is, Lord, you know what the day holds for me. I have no idea. I may have plans there may be things going on. I've got an agenda. But there's so much of our day that we have no idea what's going to take place, what's going to happen. But God does. He knows all of it. He's already orchestrated all of it. He knows exactly what's going to happen. So it would just seem to make sense to go to the Lord at the beginning of our day. Lord, I don't know what the day holds. I don't know what the world has for me. I don't know what you have for me, Lord. But I ask, I pray, Lord, that you give me sustenance sufficient for the day in whatever comes up, whatever takes place, so that I'm in a place, Lord, where I can rely upon you and get through, handle what is happening that day. So rising up early and spending time with the Lord, if you've ever done that, you see the blessing from it. And I know, I hear it all the time from all sorts of people, Oh, yeah, but you don't know how early I get up. No, I don't. The question would be, how late do you stay up? <laughs> because it's in direct proportion to each other, right? Well, I can't get up early because I stay up so late. Duh, go to bed earlier, you know? It just makes sense. But if we go to bed earlier, we're able to get up earlier. It's just a principle that works. And we can spend time with the Lord before we start our day to take the Lord with us through our day. And I know the Lord. The Lord is not going to be in a place where you get up early and the Lord says, well, 
you know, I, I hear you, but, you know, it's probably not going to last. And, you know, you kind of come to me, oh, you're only giving me five minutes, and you're coming to me and asking me to guide you through your day and help you out through your day. You're coming to me for that. Well, of course he hears that and answers that. That's exactly what he wants from us, isn't it? Intimate fellowship. He wants us to spend time with him and asking him for the very thing that he wants to give us. He wants to guide us and direct us. That's what a disciple of Jesus is. We all know that, that know the Lord. We have come to be his disciples. But we have opportunity in our lives to share that with someone else. So how do we become a disciple of Jesus? How can we communicate that to someone else? And it's a good reminder for us as well. Three things. By trusting, trusting, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Use that verse in your prayer early in the morning. Lord, I want to this day trust you with all my heart. But I know I need your uh, support system, your Holy Spirit, to get behind me and help me do that. And Lord, I don't want to lean on my own understanding because that's got me in trouble so many times. I have, I have no understanding into so many things, Lord. I need you to help me with that. And Lord, I'm going to acknowledge you in all of that as my day goes on. And Lord, I'm just asking you to direct me, guide me, give me a path to go on. And God will honor that. He just will. So by trusting, number two, by believing in John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Two words in there that pop right out at us, hunger and thirst. Out of all the other things that are being said there, bread, hunger, thirst, we see those. Lord, give me sustenance sufficient for the day. Give me bread physically. Give me water physically. Also, Lord, give me bread spiritually and give me water spiritually as well so by trusting by believing and by obeying hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 tells us therefore we also since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses other disciples let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith how many of you here this morning in an honest assessment of yourselves would say, I'm a sinner? Anybody that doesn't have your hand raised up, uh, see me after the service. <laughs> uh, we have some things to talk about, I think. All of us sin and fall short, don't we? We all mess up. Uh, Raul Reese wrote in one of his books, when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean that we're sinless, but we should sin less. It's something for us to live by, to know that there's still sin present in our life. We still have the flesh that we're dealing with, but Christ is there to help us to overcome those things. We want to do that by being obedient to what he tells us to do. When we're not obedient, we're sinning. Bottom line, if we don't obey, we're sinning. So it's interesting, as we're talking about disciples and discipleship, that there's a verse in Matthew 28, 19 that says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Sounds like a, a good suggestion, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that's good for some. I don't, know, I don't know if it really applies to me, but go and make disciples of all nations. 
It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Something that we are to be doing. That's one of those things that we kind of go, it's a command, but it's optional. It's optional for me because of who I am and my makeup, you know, my personality type and all that. You see, I'm, I'm shy. <laughs> so, well, I'm not shy, obviously, but there are people that are. And so that's just, I don't think that, you know, discipleship is something that I'm supposed to be involved with to go and make disciples. Right here it says that that's what you're supposed to be doing. Because Christ knows that as we desire to be his disciple, that he wants to use us to disciple others. Because healthy disciples reproduce healthy disciples. Healthy sheep reproduce healthy sheep. Christ is saying to us, be my disciple and go and make disciples. Go and make more like yourself, like you are. And that's a scary thought. That, for some of us, is what chases us away immediately. Oh, Lord, to go out and make somebody like me in my walk with the Lord? There's an easy fix to that. Have a better walk with the Lord, <laughs> you know? Draw closer to the Lord. Let him work in your life to encourage you, to build you up and equip you further to do that very thing that he wants you to do. So love God and love others. If, if we love God, if we truly love God, we will want to be the disciple that he wants us to be. And if we truly love others, we will want them to be the disciples that God wants them to be. And we can help in that process by using a word that we see in finance all the time, an investment. All of us like that word investments because we, we know that somewhere on the other end of that, there's payback, right? Get a little payback on this one. An investment, financial strategy. Here is a discipleship investment strategy. Three things, time, talent, and treasure. Time, using our God-given time for God and for others. Talent, using our God-given talent for God and for others. And treasure, using our God-given treasure for God and for others. So time. How many of us would say here this morning, oh, I got, I got time on my hands. I got plenty of time. I've got so much spare time. How many of you would say that? Yeah. No, we, we always fill it with something, don't we? You know, you think about the Lord of the Rings movies. They're, they're like three hours long. Now, I enjoy those movies, but it's three hours long. It's the same amount of time that Gilligan went on that tour on the ship, if you'll remember. <laughs> it was supposed to just be a three-hour tour, you know. And we know the same thing going to the movies. It never, it never is just three hours even. That's the movie. It's the prep time, getting ready, popcorn, you know, all that. Downtime afterwards, talking about it. It takes up a lot of time. We fill time. We are masters at filling up time. Even if we're filling it up with nothingness. I need some me time. I need some downtime just to kind of hang. We do that. We just hang. I want some brainless activity. That happens to me a lot. Uh, you know, I mean, even walking somewhere. <laughs> I can, I just adapt real well to brainless activity. I don't know what that is, but we have a problem with time. We think that we're very busy, but if we really do a, a self-examination on our time, we find that we waste a lot of time, don't we? We find that it's time that we could be investing in our walk with the Lord and investing in others' walk with the Lord. 
Talent. Talent. All of us have a God-given talent of some type, of some sort. If you haven't figured out what that is just yet, pray. Seek God. God, I know that you've given me some talent, something, and I want to use it for you. What's God's response going to be to that? No. Forget it. No, he's not going to. That's exactly what he wants you to ask of him. Lord, what is my talent so that I can use it for you? And treasure. God-given treasure. What's our treasure? Drive home. Look around. There's your treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We have a lot of treasures. What does God want us to do with those treasures? I look at all that God has blessed me with, and now I want to use that for him. Giving some of it away. Just give it away. How many of us have things in our homes that we've got two of or three of? I know we've got three TVs. Why? I, you know, no matter how hard I've tried, I can only watch one at a time. They're in different rooms. So it just, now, yeah, I could turn them all on and as I move from room to room, you know, hey, I don't lose anything, you know. I don't do that. So they're a waste. I can get rid of some of those. Does anybody need a TV? And you're not going to raise your hands, are you? <laughs> no, you're not calling me into that trap, Pastor. <laughs> but we all have treasures. We always have those things that we have too much of, things that we don't need, things that we focus on. And we can use those things to invest in the lives of others. So we are to be investing in our relationship with the Lord. You're here this morning for that very reason. And we are to invest in relationships with others to hopefully draw them to God or closer to God. So in an honest evaluation of ourselves, as we look at those three things, time, talent, and treasure, where do we stand? Important point, if, if you don't take anything else away from the teaching this morning, take, take this with you, that no matter where you are in your Christian walk, you're farther along than someone else. No matter where you are in your Christian walk, you are farther along than someone else, which means that they are someone that you can invest in. Amen? They are someone that you can put time into, talent into, treasure into, to see that they grow in their walk with the Lord. Time, talent, and treasure. If you seek to be the disciple God wants you to be, then there is someone that God wants you to disciple. We have that process that Christ set up. The master of evangelism, the master of discipleship, disciples, making disciples, making disciples. And we see that starting in this text. We see this first mention of disciple, and we see already, as we read through this, what's taking place, what's happening, as you've got guys going to guys, and, and you know, they're telling about Christ that he's here. And so discipleship is starting. It's in its infancy here, but it's starting to go, and we can learn a lot from that. So we see these two disciples of John, who are about to become disciples of Jesus. Verse 36 you remember when we were looking at the actual text? We're back there now. Verse 36. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus is there walking by. John points him out, calls attention to him, declares him, bears witness of him. He's recognizing Jesus for who he is. He's already telling others about him. God wants to use us in the same way. To point 
to Jesus, to tell others about Jesus, to guide them to Jesus. Exactly what uh, John is doing here. And we're going to see these disciples start to do the same thing as well. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Why? Why did they leave John and follow Jesus? Curiosity, maybe? The day previous, you know, we're on the next day. The day previous, John said he called Jesus the Son of God. Now, I don't know about you, but that alone would cause me to, Son of God. Oh, he's, he's got to be an interesting fellow. I think I will check him out and see what's going on. But we know that they were waiting for the Messiah. They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They would have been watching for that. So if someone says, hey, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb of God, this is the Son of God, their attention would be captured at that point, I'm sure. At this point, they stop following John, and they begin to follow Jesus. Verse 38, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? So you have this picture, Jesus walking by, behold, the Lamb of God. Oh, I think we'll follow him. And they start following him. And Jesus recognizes that they're following. I, I don't know if it was a creeper thing, a stalker thing. Okay, who are the guys back here? <laughs> you know, a couple characters. It's not the way it was at all. Jesus knew these guys. He knew them intimately. He knew who they were. He knew what they were going to ask. He knew everything about them. But he asks them, what do you seek? What do you seek? It's interesting that it's not who do you seek, but what do you seek? It's an interesting question for us as well. What do we seek? You know, uh, the phrase this time of year, wise men still seek him. Seeking him. They, they want answers. They've got questions. Was he the Messiah? Is he truly the Messiah? Because John was honest with them, wasn't he? They asked him, are you the, the Christ? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. He was honest with them about who he was, a voice crying in the wilderness. They probably asked him, are you, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah? When and how will you establish your kingdom? They've got questions. Could they be a part of it? They'd like to be. Their teacher, their rabbi, John the Baptist, he pointed to Jesus. He saw someone as Jesus that they should be drawn to so they can trust his witness, his testimony to follow Jesus. And then they say, where are you staying? Where are you staying? Now, when I first looked at this, to me, it was kind of an odd question. Because if I was in their sandals following Jesus, that's not the first thing that would have come to mind. I don't know what it would have been necessarily, but I, I can kind of feel for these guys. Because if you're standing in the very presence of the Son of God, if you're standing in front of the Messiah, you would have a tendency to lock up a little bit, wouldn't you? You'd, you'd panic. In my life, I've had that experience a couple times with none other than Pastor Chuck Smith. Chuck's gone home to be with the Lord. Praise God. He's there. We'll get to see him in heaven. I've got questions for him. I had questions for him when he was here. It didn't always come out that way. In 1993, I went to the Southeastern Pastors Conference down in Florida. I left my hotel room the first evening that I was there because I, well, I wanted to 
a soda and a candy bar. You know, I, <laughs> I go to get a snack, and as I'm walking in the convenience store, who is there buying a candy bar? None other than Pastor Chuck Smith in his Hawaiian shirt. There. He walks away from the counter. I'm walking in, meeting face to face. I'm smiling. He smiles. All the things running through my mind that I want to say, well, I, I greet him, ask him, all these things. Nothing. Pastor Chuck smiles and says, something for the sweet tooth. And I respond, <laughs> that's it. That's all I got. <laughs> Walk away going, stupid, stupid, stupid. You know, oh, it was Pastor Chuck. There's been so many things that I would want to ask him. That was it. So years later, a few years ago, I went to the leadership conference down in Tucson. And <laughs> who is there teaching but Pastor Chuck? So between sessions, I see him standing on the other side of the sanctuary, and I'm feeling the call of the Lord to go, you know, go and engage with Pastor Chuck. Just wanted to try to make up for this <laughs> scene 20 years ago, you know, which I'm sure he remembers. But as I go over to him, I reach out my hand. You know, and at this time, I'm an assistant pastor. You know, I've got confidence. I've got a boldness. Yeah, I got this. Reach out my hand. Pastor Chuck grabs my hand, looks at me, and I say, yeah, I'm Pastor Chapel. I'm from McCreeley and Calvary, and I, <laughs> it was terrible. I, I twisted my words up, and nothing came out the way that I wanted it to. I think in the same way that I think these two do, a little nervous about what to say. Where are you staying? <laughs> but I think the heart of what they were asking is what we need to look at, because I think they were genuinely concerned about where he was staying, either for one of two reasons. Either they wanted to be invited to go with him, they wanted to spend some time with him, much in the same way that I just wanted to hang out with Pastor Chuck. I think these guys genuinely wanted to hang out with Jesus. They wanted to hang out with the one that was their Messiah, the Son of God. Or it could be that Maybe he didn't have a place to stay, and they were going to invite him to stay with them. Whatever the case is, the heart of it was they wanted to spend time with the Lord. So they asked, where are you staying? So remember the previous day, John the Baptist says, look, he's the son of God. I've given you testimony of that. So where does the son of God stay? You know, what does he eat? He's the son of God. These are things that they would want to know. All good questions. They would want to know more about him, so they want to spend time with him. Verse 39 says, he said to them, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Come and see. A very profound statement with great implications. Come and and see the invitation to do what? Follow him. Follow him. Spend time with him. Be with him. Which was the very thing that they were seeking after. Come and see. They do. They go stay with him. There's no indication from the text about what it is that they talked about. I'm sure the conversation was all over the place. But they had many, many questions as we would. But this simple statement, come and see, is recurring as we go through this text. We see it come up again. 
They learn very quickly, if you will. Come and see. This is what we're to do as well. Come and see. You have the opportunity next week, the Christmas service. It's going to be a special service. And you have the opportunity to go to your neighbors, to your friends, co-workers, whoever they are, and that simple statement, hey, we're having this special Christmas service. You should check it out. Come and, and see. Well, what's it all about? Well, come and see. Well, yeah, 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 but what's going to take? Come and see. And if you don't know how to get there, follow me. We see that later on here as well. So come and see and follow me. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So one of the two, there was two, one of the two was Andrew. I don't know about you guys, the first question that popped in my mind, who's number two? Who, who is this guy? The text doesn't tell us. Who is it? We've got Andrew. Who else would Jesus know? Well, I know that there's a writer of this gospel called John who doesn't make reference to himself by name a lot, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you know. But who is this other guy? I believe it's John. Most scholars agree that it is John, the writer of this gospel. He was Jesus' cousin. He would have been spending time around Jesus while he was growing up. And he doesn't make reference to himself. That's a good hint for us as well. So let's run with that. It's John. So our cast of characters so far are John the Baptist, Jesus, Andrew, John, the writer of this gospel. And now we're going to see Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. We see that happening through this text a lot where we get that explanation, that little tag on there that helps us gain more insight into what teacher is, rabbi is, uh, stone, what, what this name is that he gave him, Cephas. So we have these two brothers, Andrew and Simon, uh, Simon Peter. They're both fishermen, as we know from the other Gospels. Uh, they are from Bethsaida. We see that in verse 44. Andrew is best known for bringing people to Jesus. We see that happen several times. Andrew goes out, brings people to Jesus. Hey, I got to tell you about this Jesus. Well, what about him? Come and see. He's using that phrase to draw people to, to lead people to Jesus. Now we have Simon Peter, or Cephas, or just Peter, as we know him throughout the New Testament. You know, the guy that suffered from the foot-shaped mouth. He was constantly inserting his foot in his mouth. I can relate uh, to Peter so many times. Uh, but Peter was also one of three disciples that got to spend a lot of time with Jesus, extra time, if you will. I don't by any means want to say they were Jesus' favorites, but he involved them in some ministry areas that some of the others weren't involved in. They got to see things and experience things uh, that the other nine didn't. There's Simon, or Peter, and James and John, right? Peter, James, and John. Why did Jesus change Simon's name? Why, why did he do that? Why not just call him Simon Peter? He didn't change Andrew's name, did he? Why did he change his name? Well, it's as if, as if Jesus said... Uh, Simon, you're about as stable as uh, sand on the seashore, but I see your potential. I see what you will become because Jesus has that insight, doesn't he? See us where we are, where we've been, and also where we're going. He calls Peter the rock. In verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, 
follow me. So already we see another phrase at work here. We see Jesus finding Philip and saying, follow me. Now we don't know exactly at how all of that took place. We don't know how he even found Philip, but he's God. He found him. It shouldn't surprise us. He found us. He found us where we were, all of us in the different places that we were. He found us. So he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip now comes on the scene and Jesus says to him, follow me. Come and see. Follow me. Repeating phrases in this text. Verse 45, then Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Kind of an odd statement on Nathanael's part. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, like, are these a lower class of people? Well, to the Jews, anybody that lived up in the Galilee region, uh, they were. They were just looked down upon. Also, we have at work here is the fact that Nathanael was a student of the scriptures. We're going to see that later in this text. And that he would have known that the Messiah was going to come from where? Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Oh, you're calling this guy Messiah and he's coming from Nazareth? I don't think so because Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. So it's really a good question. Well, how does Philip respond to this? How does Philip respond to this question that Nathaniel asked? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's he say? Come and see. A good lesson for us, something that we should remember, because we don't always have the answers, do we? We get faced with certain things, ask certain questions that we don't have the answers to, but we can point them in the right direction, can't we? Come and see. Come and see. Take them to a place where they can learn from God's Word and grow in God's Word where the answers are found. Now let's move on as we close to this interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, and when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So how do we go from Nathaniel saying, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? To verse 49, you are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. Something happened there. Something changed. There was a game changer that took place. Jesus said in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. The word deceit translated from the Septuagint is Jacob. In the King James Version, the word deceit is guile. And both of those words are translated Jacob. You remember Jacob from the Old Testament? What do we kind of know Jacob as? Deceitful. He was a trickster. He liked to get his way. Tricked his brother out of his birthright. Tricked his father-in-law Laban out of 
a lot of his goods. He was a trickster, Jacob, deceitful. In Genesis chapter 32, we see that Jacob is wrestling with the Lord. It's that scene where in the middle of the night, he's wrestling with the Lord. The Lord throws his hip out of joint and he hangs on. He's not going to let go till God blesses him. God does bless him. He changes his name. What's he change it to? Israel, governed by God. From Jacob, the deceitful guy, the trickster, to Israel, governed by God. What did Jesus say to Nathanael when he saw him coming? Behold an Israelite. What does that mean? Someone who is in the line of Israel. Someone who is in the line of Jacob. Governed by God. And in whom there is no deceit. So because Jesus knows us intimately, knows everything about us, he knows at any given point in time what we are looking at, what we are gazing at, what we are reading. And because he is God, he's able to use that situation to speak to our hearts. Behold an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. Nathaniel, under the fig tree, was doing what? Reading scripture, this very scripture. That's why Jesus said that. But that's not the end of it. He goes on. Because we see in Genesis chapter 28, there's the account of Jacob doing what? Sleeping under a tree, having this dream of this ladder that goes from earth up to heaven and angels ascending and descending upon it. Sound familiar? Yeah, verse 51, we see that. He tells him that as well. But he says that this time the, the angels are, of God are ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on, upon what? The Son of Man. Jesus is the ladder. He's the bridge between God and man, between earth and heaven. Jesus is God. We've established that. Therefore, Jesus knew Nathaniel. He knew Philip. He knew Peter. He knew Andrew. He knew where they were from. He knew what they'd been doing. He knew where they were going, what they would become. And as we have become disciples of Jesus Christ because we've believed in him, there's a place that he wants us to go as well. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. You are, as a believer in Jesus Christ, his disciple. And he has what he wants for you to do, which is go and reproduce, go and make disciples. It's been said by someone, I don't know if it originated with Pastor Chuck, God's commandments are God's enablements. If God's commanding us to do something, God will also equip us to carry it out. So if God has called us as disciples and wants us to go and disciple, he will equip us to accomplish the very work that he's calling us to. God knows where we're from. God knows what we've been doing, where we're going. He knows everything about us. He loves us. He's called us to be his disciples. He's calling us as he did originally, come and see and follow me. And he wants to use us to use that same message. Come and see. Follow me. Amen.